So this morning we celebrate the feast of St. Thomas Aquinas and the dedication of this chapel as well. And the readings seem to be designed to bring together these two separate events. In the first reading, we are introduced to Solomon and his prayer. The young king informs us that he prefers wisdom to all other goods, power, intelligence, wealth, health, good looks, and so forth. God will tell him, What you have asked for, I will give you, such riches and glory that no other king has ever had. But it is only the gospel that makes the meaning clear. Here Jesus assures us that he is the truth and that he has come to teach us the truth. His whole life, his words, his silence, his miracles, his display of various emotions right up to his death, resurrection, and ascension manifest to us that his father, the infinitely rich God, has no other greater treasure than his own love, and that love is for us. That basically is the truth that Jesus taught. One manifestation of that love was that he founded a church and promised that he would be with that church to carry on the Father's saving work of salvation until the end of time. He accomplishes this task through the Holy Spirit, the source of knowledge and understanding in the world. It seems to me that these two feasts that we celebrate this morning, along with the readings of the Mass, invite us to reflect, however briefly, on the activities of the Spirit in the history of Christ's Church. History is our great teacher. And unless we are acquainted with the events the Spirit has accomplished in history, we condemn ourselves to a one-dimensional kind of knowledge. For brevity's sake, let us spin up to the Middle Ages when the Holy Spirit-inspired monks, armed with the vow of stability like Benedict, Columban, and Bernard, to found monasteries where God was praised and where the learning of Greece and Rome was preserved, where neighboring forests were cleared and swamps drained, and where the art of farming was taught to the people. Modern scholars attribute the beginnings of capitalism to these monasteries, and we know that capitalism is one of the foundations of Western civilization. Another aspect of the West is seen in government. The church worked assiduously to hem in the authority of Christian kings, which ultimately led to the principles of parliamentary government. This type of government was rooted in canon law, a happy byproduct of clerical celibacy. Since heredity could play no governance in the church, the process of election became the accepted norm. Monks elected abbots, canons of cathedrals elected bishops, and eventually the College of Cardinals elected the Pope. Civil governments eventually followed suit. And all of this we see in the providential working of the Holy Spirit. As towns grew, 
Trade expanded, leisure and urban poverty increased, and there became a need for evangelization that the monks, with their vow of stability and their attachment to the rural monastery, could not fulfill. And so the Holy Spirit raised up a new group, mendicants, Franciscans and Dominicans, to meet the challenge. Part of this challenge was found in the newly evolving universities. Dun Scotus, Bonaventure, Albert, and Thomas Aquinas are names associated with this phase of the evolving world. Then came the Renaissance, followed by the Reformation. The Reformation weakened the Church. In Protestant lands, it promoted royal absolutism, Caesaropapism, and in Catholic lands, the threatened church sought refuge behind the secular power, ultimately becoming an appendage of the state. And now the Holy Spirit raised up a new radically different group of clerics, the Jesuits, to assert the independence of the papacy and spread the gospel to the new socioeconomic new world order. In a sense, we can say that this order existed till the end of World War I when a new era was conceived. It struggled to birth, emerging from the blood of millions and was described in the pastoral constitutions of the Church of the modern world in Vatican Council II. The Council Fathers wrote, The world today reveals itself as at once powerful and weak, capable of achieving the best and the worst. So this is our world that the fathers are describing. There lies open before it the way to freedom or slavery, progress or regression, brotherhood or hatred. And then, after a number of paragraphs describing the tensions uh, distributing uh, in, in that world, after World War II, the Fathers of Vatican II concluded, but in the face of the way in which the world is developing today, there is an ever-increasing number of people who are asking the most fundamental questions or are seeing them in keener awareness. What is man? What's the meaning of pain, of evil, of death, which still persists in spite of such great progress? What's the use of those successes achieved at such a cost? What can man contribute to society? What can he escape? What can he expect from society? What will come after this life on earth? The Church believes that Christ died and rose for all and can give man light and strength through his spirit to fulfill this highest calling, his only name under the heavens which man can be saved. And so, too, the Church believes that the center goal of all human history is found in the Lord and Master. The Church also affirms that un underlying all changes, there are many things that do not change. They have their ultimate foundation in Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So these are the words, the first words of the, the Constitution on the Church of the, our Vatican II fathers. So what have we here is an affirmation 
although history demonstrates that there have been many changes, the Holy Spirit has accommodated himself in making Christ, who, was ever, who never changes, known. The work of the Holy Spirit is somehow symbolized in the structure of this building in which we now offer this Mass this morning. An edifice that incorporates artistic and structural modes that owe their origin to changes in history. A structure that witnesses to a plan, a designer who has molded elements, spiritual and material, timeless and ephemeral, and who has taken from his workshop the reliable tools of, that the past have affected this design and which promise to be indispensable means for that, that plan in the future. One of the most operative, powerful, and practical of his tools is the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas, a teaching that is qualified to answer the questions posed under the guidance of the Holy Spirit by the fathers of Vatican II, which I just read to you. But who will use these tools to continue the future work of the Holy Spirit, which is, which is make, to make Christ ever old, never new, visible in his church of tomorrow? In the past, the Spirit rose up clerics and new religious orders to accomplish this task. But the same fathers of the church who posed the questions cited earlier decreed, the council then makes an earnest plea in the name of the Lord that all lay people give a glad, generous, and prompt response to the impulse of the Holy Spirit and to the voice of Christ who was giving them an especial urgent invitation at this very moment. Young people should feel that this call is directed to them in particular that they should respond to it eagerly and magnanimously. The Lord renews his invitation to all the lay faithful to come closer to him every day. And with the recognition that was his is also their own, they ought to associate themselves with him in his saving mission. So wrote the fathers of Vatican II. And so we look about this church, centered as it is in the midst of this college. We are reminded that it was lay people that heard the Lord's plea and gave prompt response to the Holy Spirit's call. It is also they who have used the most effective tool, the works of St. Thomas Aquinas, to meet the challenges that the fathers of Vatican II outlined. Finally, on this day, we recall the Council Fathers, citing St. Luke, wrote that once again Christ sends his own into every town and every place where he himself is to come. And so that, in a sense, is the promise and the challenge also that we today uh, face. And it is particularly, uh, we reminded, of the uh, lay people who founded this college and who have given it their 
insistent devotion to St. Thomas and to his works as a means uh, to be effective in the world of today and of tomorrow. And so it is particularly the students of the college who are given the challenge to bring the word of Christ to, uh, to work with the Holy Spirit in its accomplishment to create the church of tomorrow and to be aware of the fact of the challenges that surround them. Many of these young people are here today. Most of them are still in their trundle beds dreaming of their pretty toys. And so those of you who are here can go back to your colleagues, your companions, and tell them about the challenges that they face and about the methods that they have at hand to meet those challenges with faith and confidence in the Lord and in the Holy Spirit who guides them as he has guided the church in the past and especially the founders of this college now and those who uh, bring St. Thomas and his works uh, to the students now and in the future. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.